Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. So glad that you are here. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving just a couple of weeks ago. I had a really good time visiting Gabby's family for Thanksgiving. The downside to visiting them is they live so far away. But on the bright side, they live in a vacation destination. So the fact that they live in Florida kind of makes up for the fact that we have to travel to see them. But the most memorable time that I had that week, it wasn't the Thanksgiving meal. It wasn't going to the beach. It wasn't even a date with my wife. The most memorable part of that trip happened just two hours before we left from Florida to go back home. Now, before I get into this story, I feel like it deserves a little bit of a disclaimer. <laughs> this story is a, a little bit gross, okay? It's the kind of thing where, like, it happened to me, and I wanted to tell this story to all of my friends, and I was like, I could never use this as a sermon illustration. But then I was working on the message for this week, and it just fit. So just, just hang on, and I promise I'm going to try to pull a spiritual lesson out of this story. So it was two hours before we were leaving for the airport, and we had just finished eating brunch with Gabby's family, and I really had to use the bathroom. Now, there were two bathrooms in this house. One of them was connected to her parents' bedroom. The other one was connected to her brother's bedroom. And I was like, well, I care more about the approval of her parents than her brothers. So if I'm going to make a stink in a bathroom, I'm going to use her brother's. And this is the bathroom where the plumbing makes some really weird noises. And so I had to do a number two. And it was one of those ones where you got to flush like halfway through just to make sure it goes down the pipes. So I do that first flush, and it doesn't go down. So I'm assessing the situation, and I see that there's a plunger. So I'm like, all right, I'll be needing that later. So at the end... I give it the second flush. It does not go down. And at this point, the toilet bowl is like three-quarters of the way full of water. Even the water's not going down. So I grab that plunger, and I'm just working on it and working on it. And it will not go down. And so I'm thinking through my options, like, it's not going down, but what am I going to do? Poke my head out the door and be like, hey, guys, I need help unplugging the toilet. I'm like... If I can't do it, what can they really do to help me? And so, in my pride, I just kept working on it for an embarrassingly long time. Like, her parents probably thought that I got lost in that bathroom. And so, after working on it for a while, I was like, all right, I have an idea. It seemed like a good idea in the moment. I figured I've already loosened it up. I'll just try flushing it one more time. Maybe it just needs that extra boost to go down the drain pipes. Within seconds of flushing that toilet, I knew that was not the right choice. Like, it, brown water just started overflowing this toilet all over my in-law's bathroom. So I quick grabbed the shower mat, threw it in the shower, and bolted out of that door before my feet got wet. And I had to explain to my in-laws that I just made an incredible mess of their bathroom. And I'm not going to get into the details of cleaning up. I figure I've already crossed some lines here. And so I should just get right to the spiritual lesson here. I made a huge mess of things 
because I did what seemed like the right choice in the moment. I could have gone and gotten help and realized that there were plumbing issues that I didn't know about and got, had the resources to fix it, but I had too much pride for that. I was like, I need to take care of this myself. And so I thought the right decision was to flush it just that one more time. But in doing that, I really made a mess of things. And so the spiritual lesson is what we see in this verse in Proverbs, where it says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And here's the part that connects. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And sometimes the pathway to death, it looks right. Maybe it looks right because it just it feels like it's right or it's the sensible thing to do. It's what other people are doing or other people are telling you to do. And the tricky thing is that sometimes bad choices don't look like bad choices, at least in the moment. And it just makes me wonder, what are some of the things that we're doing in our lives that we think are the right choice, but it's really got us on a pathway that leads to really bad negative consequences. And so my hope for us this morning in this message is that we could just unmask some of those things that look like the right choice, but really have us headed down the wrong path. And we will be doing that by looking at some characters in the Bible and seeing how their lives illustrate this truth. Now, when it says that in the end it leads to death, I think that this is a figurative way of saying really bad negative consequences. But I also think that this can include spiritual death, which is separation from God. Like if you are not a believer in Jesus, then this can head, uh, send you down that path. And I also think that this can be referring to, like, literal physical death. Not in every case. Like, if you don't take this stuff seriously, I'm not saying that you're just going to drop dead on your way out of here. But not taking God's word seriously and headed down this wrong path, it really does lead to death, or at least super bad consequences. And so we'll be taking a look at the lives of three characters in the Bible and seeing how their lives illustrate this truth and we'll cover the first two pretty quickly and then spend more time on the last character. So the first guy I want to talk about is David. He's king over Israel. If you were here last week, you would have heard uh, Kurt talk about him a little bit. And so I'm just going to go pretty quickly through the story and connect it to what we're talking about here. So David, instead of going out to battle with his army and doing what kings are supposed to do, which is kind of lounging around the palace, he sees a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and even though she is a married woman, he summons for her to come to his palace, and then David sleeps with her. And instead of focusing on the right thing to do, David just gave in to his feelings. His feelings were governing, governing what he saw to be right in that moment. And as a consequence, Bathsheba got pregnant with his baby. So now David's in a little bit of a predicament here because he doesn't want her husband to find out. And so he goes into problem-solving mode, and he sends her husband out to battle and arranges for him to die in battle and have it look like an accident. And instead of doing the right thing, 
David just tried to problem solve and fix the situation that he was in. And the consequence of David's sin is that it resulted in death. Not his death, but the death of that son that he had with Bathsheba. And God took the life of that baby to show David the severity of his sin. And God also told David that he would bring calamity on David's household and that someday somebody would sleep with his women, with his wives. And yes, David had multiple wives. God doesn't say in the Bible that it's okay to have multiple wives, but this was pretty common in this time in history. And so now we're going to fast forward a little bit and introduce this next character. And his name is Amnon. Amnon is the son of David, and what he does is what starts to unravel David's kingdom, is he just does what's right in his own eyes, and he has romantic feelings for his half-sister named Tamar. So kind of a messy situation here, and he's literally lovesick, where he wants her so bad that it's affecting his physical appearance, and he had this counselor come to him and give him some worldly advice his counselor said, all right, just pretend like you're sick, and then she'll come and take care of you, and then you can take advantage of her then. And so that's what he does. And when she's vulnerable, he forces her to sleep with him. And after he did that, he despised her and sent her away from his sight. And in that moment, Amnon just pursued his lust and his desire. It seemed like that would be the thing that would satisfy him. But in the end... This is what led to death, and quite literally, his physical death. After he sent away Tamar, she went to live with her full brother named Absalom. Now, Absalom and Amnon are half-brothers. They both share King David as their father, but they have different mothers. And we're going to zoom in on Absalom's life this morning and see how his life is an illustration of this truth that sometimes doing the thing that looks right can lead to this path of death. So let's go ahead and look at how Absalom responds in this whole situation. And we will be in chapter 13, verse 22. And I'm just going to warn you, we are going to do a lot of skipping around this morning. We're covering like four chapters of content. And so if it's easier for you to just follow on the screen, that's totally fine. But in verse 22 of chapter 13... It says, and Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. All right, pretty understandable, right? Absalom gives Amnon the silent treatment for two years. He resents Amnon, not just for what he did, but he resents Amnon's very existence. And he despises King David, his father, for not stepping in and dealing with this sin that Amnon committed. And so Absalom spent two years just plotting and planning his revenge, planning out how to end Amnon's life. And after those two years, he finally makes his move, where he hosts a sheep-shearing party. So back in biblical days... They would shear their sheep, and they would make a party of it. And so it wasn't uncommon to invite people over. And so Absalom makes sure to invite Amnon over to his party. 
And this is the kind of party where alcohol was involved. And he told his men, all right, when Amnon gets drunk and I give you the word, end his life. And that is exactly what happens. And so, by implication, Absalom kills his half-brother, Amnon. And and Absalom hated Amnon so much that he was willing to become a murderer in order to get his revenge. He put himself in the situation where he can either be taken to court as a criminal and pay the consequences or just run away from justice and try to escape the consequences. Neither of those sound like really good options, but in his mind, it was worth it just to get the revenge that he wanted against Amnon. And so between the two options, Absalom decided to just run away so he wouldn't get caught and have to pay the price for being a murderer. And so that's what we see in chapter 13 in verse 37. It says, Absalom fled and went to Telmai, son of Emud, king of Geshur. But King David mourned many days for his son. After Absalom fled and went to Geshur, he stayed there three years. It's three years of living and hiding. Now, if you were David and one of your sons murders another one of your sons, how would you be feeling? Would you be in the depths of despair? Would you be burning with anger? Would you want to send an army out to track down Absalom and bring him to justice? Or would you just compartmentalize that situation and move on with life as if nothing ever happened? I think that all of those responses could be pretty understandable for David. But what he does kind of blows my mind. In verse 39, it says, And King David longed to go to Absalom, For he was consoled concerning Amnon's death. Even though his son had taken the life of another son that he loved, David still loved Absalom. He still missed him and was sad that he was living far away in banishment. And so David sent the message to Absalom telling him that he could come back and live in Jerusalem, not as a criminal, but as a free man. David shows Absalom mercy. There was still two years before David talked to Absalom face to face because there was that distance in the relationship. But Absalom was allowed to go back to his home and, and live with, among friends and family and kind of have that life restored that he had before he became a murderer. That's incredible mercy. But Absalom did not appreciate this mercy that David showed him. Instead, he let pride creep into his heart, and he began to think that he was better than King David, his father. He began to think that some of the things that David had, he should have too. And so he gets to this point where he tries to overthrow the kingdom and take the throne from David. So let's go ahead and look at his plans to do that in chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. 
Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, If only I were appointed judge in the land. And then everyone who had a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that they received justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. And Absalom behaved this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So David or Absalom puts himself in this position where he's making himself look better than David. And he's given the people what they want so that their affections will be towards him and not the rightful king. And he goes on with this act for four years, just stealing the hearts of the people before making his final move against David. And so after these four years, he comes to David and asks for permission to go to a city called Hebron, which is a city that was south of Jerusalem. And and David, not thinking anything of it, says, all right, go on ahead. And so Absalom goes to Hebron with 200 men. And once he's kind of established there, he sends out these secret messengers all over Israel to deliver this message. The message is, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. So he's already stole the hearts of the people, and this is kind of his final move to rally people to his side and against David. And as this situation escalates, it comes to the point where David has two options. He can either fight with his son over the throne, or he can just get all of his stuff and run away. And David did not want to fight with his son, and so he packs up his stuff And he runs away, and he leaves 10 women in the palace to kind of take care of things while he's away. And as soon as David is out of Jerusalem, Absalom answers, and he kind of takes over the palace. And even David's counselor and advisor trades sides and becomes a counselor for Absalom. And the name of this advisor is Ahithophel. That is a mouthful. So... Absalom asks Ahithophel for some advice, and Ahithophel gives David some advice that will kind of show Absalom's power and put King David to disgrace. And so that's what we read in chapter 16 and in verse 21. Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. And so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. All right, that is pretty messed up. And if... I think that people got the message that Absalom was sending here. He was saying that he was the boss, and anyone who was loyal to David would be his enemy. Now, if you want to make a power play, that's the way to do it. But if you want to follow any kind of moral compass, this is not the move. Sure, it works. It gets that message across. But we see here that Absalom 
It's just so far gone. At this point in the story, things have just come full circle. And Absalom has become that very man that he hated in the beginning. He hated Amnon for forcefully sleeping with his sister. And at this point in the story, he forcefully slept with not one, but ten women who were not his wife. And he became the very monster that he sought to destroy. And how, how did this happen? It's because he was doing what looked right in his own eyes. But this is a path that led to his death. And at the end of the story, Absalom is literally killed for his crimes and the, the path that he took by one of David's commanders. And so this all goes back to illustrate the truth that we talked about in the beginning in Proverbs where it says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. And so my hope for all of us is that we would not do the things that look right, but end up taking us down a path that leads to death. And so what do we do? And I just want to go back and look at just three instances in Absalom's life where we can learn from his bad example and instead do what God has called us to do. And so the first thing I want to talk about is choosing forgiveness over revenge. We saw pretty clearly that Absalom took the path of revenge against Amnon. And I don't think I have to go too much into talking about what revenge is and how that plays out. It comes pretty naturally to us. But I do want to take some time to unpack forgiveness. Even though it's not like a new concept or anything like that. Forgiveness is something that takes work. And maybe some of us need this reminder of what forgiveness really is and how we can practice it in our lives. And as I go through these next few points, uh, you can see that it lines up with this note sheet that you have on your seat. And if you would like to follow along and take notes, this is just a resource to make that easier for you. And I'll give you some time to fill in the blanks. So forgiveness is the choice not to hold someone's sin against them. It's like when somebody sins against you, they, they basically have a debt to you. And forgiveness is releasing that debt and not holding it against them anymore. So let's talk about what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not excusing sin. When somebody wrongs you, you don't have to pretend like it's not wrong or play it off as if it's okay or you're just giving a free pass on sin. Forgiveness is not a free pass on sin. And also, forgiveness is not forgetting or just thinking that you have to give somebody the kind of trust that you gave them before that trust was broken. I think all of us have probably heard the saying, forgive and forget. And the Bible says very clearly that when we are wronged, we should forgive those who wrong us. But Jesus never says that we have to trust people who are not trustworthy. And if trust has been broken, it might take some time and some space for that trust to heal and for you to be able to trust that person like you were able to before. But you can still forgive people and not have to trust them. It's like trust should not hold us back from giving forgiveness. And when we forgive somebody, we're not just saying the words, 
I forgive you. We are making an initial choice on the front end when we say that we're forgiving somebody. We're also making a continual choice to treat that person as if they are really forgiven. And there's three ways that we can treat people as if they are forgiven. The first one is to not bring up their sin to other people. If you have really forgiven somebody, then you're not going to go to your friends and be like, hey, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? Oh, man, like that hurts so much. That person is trash. Because if you are doing that, then you are not truly releasing what they did to you. You're still holding on to their sin and counting it against them. And the same is true of when you bring up your, their sin to them. When somebody sins against us, if we are to truly forgive them, then we're not follow, filing that sin away in our minds so that we can bring it out again as ammunition or as blackmail to make them feel bad and guilty about it all over again just to kind of one-up them or put them in their place. Because that's, if we're doing that, we are still holding that sin against them. And forgiving somebody also means that we are making the choice to not bring up their sin to ourselves. That might be a, kind of a, a weird way to put it, but you can probably relate. When somebody hurts you, it's so easy to just replay in your mind over and over again what they did to you. But I think that when we do that, we just give room for bitterness in our hearts instead of replacing those negative thoughts with wholesome thoughts and thinking about how God wants us to love and forgive that person. And so I think that this is really important for truly offering somebody forgiveness. And all of this just brings us to the application question. And that is, who do you need to forgive? And maybe there's somebody in your life where you've already told them that you forgive them, or you're working on forgiving them, but you struggle with bringing up their sin to other people. You struggle with bringing up their sin to them all over again or constantly replaying that through their mind. And so my challenge for you is to identify which of those three ways do you really need to work on so that you can truly forgive that person who has wronged you. And the second thing that we learn from Absalom's life is that we should choose humility over pride. I think there's a few different ways that you can define pride. And the simplest way for me to look at it is pride is when we just make ourselves the center of our lives. And this can be expressed in the way that we talk about ourselves, the way that we treat other people as if we are more important and we're okay with pushing other people down in order to get our agenda and and just having an inflated view of ourselves. But on the flip side, humility is putting God and others at the center of our lives. Instead of just focusing on our needs, our ambitions, our wants, it's looking to the needs of other people and serving God. And one of my favorite sayings about humility is that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. And we're thinking of ourselves less when we just put into practice meeting the needs of other people and just caring for people, and even serving God. And so I think that's so key for practicing humility in our lives. And I think another antidote to pride in our lives is to just get a right perspective of God. I think if we're reading the Bible 
and just getting a view of the character of God, that he's the creator of the universe. He put everything together, and yet he still cares about us. And even the little details of our lives, that just blows my mind. And God loves all of us so much to the point that he sent his son to die on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins and experience mercy and grace and redemption. And when we focus on who God is and his character, it can give us a right perspective of ourselves. And, and if we let it, that can kind of go to battle with the pride in our hearts. And so the application question for us here is what steps do you need to take to serve God and others? What things can you be doing to just put the needs of others before your own and practice this humility? And then the, the final lesson that we get from Absalom's life is choose what is right over what works. There's some things that we can do that gets the job done. Like it works, but it's not the way that God wants us to live. Like maybe somebody has wronged you and you think, oh, if I just get back to that person in this way, then they're not going to mess with me again. Yeah, that might work, but that's not the way that God has called us to live. Uh, for me, what I struggle with is the justifiable sins, the sins that don't seem that bad. It's kind of like they're riding on the line where it's like, oh, if I can just jump through these hoops, then I don't have to pay full price for that thing, or I can get in for free, and other people are doing it. So as long as you don't get caught, then it's all good. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I think about, too, like, I don't know that Satan would be able to tempt me to the point where I would rob a bank, but it's really easy for me to give in to just those little compromises whether it's I justify it because I'll save money or it's easier or it's too much of a headache or I don't want to jump through those hoops. Sometimes I can do those things and it works, but it's not the right thing. And one of the pastors at Bridgewater likes to use this quote all the time. The blessings of God are never found outside of the boundaries of God. And we can do some things that work and they get the job done. But if it's not within the boundaries of obedience to God, then God's not going to bless that. And more than saving money or saving time or whatever it is that leads me to do that little thing, I would much rather do what's right and experience the blessing of God. And the, the question for us then is what do you need to stop doing in order to do the right thing? And I just want to wrap up this morning by taking a look at a verse that compares Satan to a thief and compares Jesus to a good shepherd. This verse says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Satan wants us to go down this path that leads to destruction. and Sometimes he makes that path look pretty. Sometimes the wrong things Look right in that moment. But Jesus died on the cross so that we can have forgiveness of our sins and so that we can have freedom of our sins, so that we don't have to feel like we are bound to go down that path. And Jesus died for us so that we can have life to the fullest. 
And I don't think that we have to wait till heaven before we're experiencing this life to the fullest. Jesus offers that to us right here in this life. And we can experience that when we place our faith in him for salvation and then follow him and just experience life, doing life with Jesus, with the peace, with the comfort, with the blessings that come from living in obedience to him. And I think that is what God wants for all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the abundant life that Jesus offers. And I know that a lot of us are, all of us are like sheep that have gone astray. And sometimes we head down that path that leads to really bad consequences because we're just doing whatever looks right in our eyes in that moment. And so, God, I pray for all of us that we would just have discernment to see um, what looks right because it is the right way or looks right because Satan is trying to get us to go down the wrong path. And please just give us um, the commitment and the strength through the power of your spirit to overcome those things in our lives and help us to just follow after you wholeheartedly. And I just thank you so much um, for your word, that it gives us these words of life that we can put it into practice and um, just experience doing life with you and doing it your way. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.